You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. There is a village, somewhere on the St. Lawrence River, where many of the houses are still made of stone. At night, when the wind clambers up the sides, rattles the windows, and howls down the chimneys, the homes stand as sturdy as they did centuries ago, holding in the warmth of their cast-iron stoves and preserving the lives and the light found inside their walls. All except one. One house sits empty on the outskirts of town, just beyond the parish line. The broken windows and slumped doorway have been dark longer than living memory. And though you'd think that nature would be, by now, in mid-stride of its reclamation, the roof, the floors, even the garden lies brown and barren. The strangest thing is the missing wall, a large hole in the side that cuts clean through the masonry. A collapsed wooden dresser sits just inside the opening, and amongst the scattered remains of rotting wood lies three spent candles. The wall looks easy enough to fix, but the piles of broken, shattered rock at its threshold demonstrate the folly of that thinking. The place is cursed. Nothing will grow there, and no matter how driven the effort, no matter how skilled the hand, the wall can never be repaired. It is, the locals tell you, a scar upon creation. An injury to the structure, the earth, the entirety of existence. Inflicted one winter night long ago, when the devil came to town. You're listening to Fireside Canada, my podcast about Canadian legends, lies, and lore. I'm David Williams. Tonight, a legend that has a place of distinction in the world of Canadian literature, and that was, at one time, one of the best-known stories in French Canada. Over the centuries, it has been shared as an entertaining late-night tale, as an attention-grabbing true anecdote told at the end of a party, and as a stirring sermon and warning issued by 19th century priests. Today, it's considered more of a quaint cultural fairy tale than a true story, valued for its insight into the cultural beliefs and principles of early French Canadians. And yet, similar legends can be found in 14th century folklore, modern urban legends, and everywhere in between, from the dance halls of Northern Europe to the nightclubs of the Southern United States. What is it about this odd morality play that has so captivated audiences for hundreds of years? How did the legend change in the hands of habitants, religious leaders, and 19th century authors? And what can it tell us about our changing views of order and chaos, God and the devil? Take a seat by the fire and join me on an exploration of the French-Canadian legend of the devil at the dance. Ah, the waltz. The grace, the glamour, the romance. It brings to mind images of carefree couples gliding across hardwood dance floors, ladies in colourful dresses with tight waists and high collars whirling through elegant ballrooms. The perfect dance for a pleasant evening. 
English artist Sir Alfred Munnings called it the best of all dances. Mark Twain was exceedingly delighted with both the waltz and the polka, calling them amazingly exhilarating. One, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. It's easy to get carried away by the music that Leo Tolstoy described as captivating and intoxicating. As the world-famous conductor André Rieu has said, if you're in my audience, you give yourself to me and the waltz will grab you. It almost sounds a little sinister, don't you think? An intoxicating melody that will grab you, maybe even control you, drive you to think thoughts or even commit acts that normally, as a good, moral person, you'd find reprehensible. Such is the power of dance and the music that encourages it, at least according to some moralists of the 19th and early 20th centuries. Though most of us today consider dances like the waltz to be quaint and old-fashioned, reserved for fancy dinner parties and debutante balls, there was a time when the waltz, and dancing in general, was considered scandalous and corruptive. An 1816 editorial published in the London Times called it an indecent foreign dance that was, quote, far removed from the modest reserve which has hitherto been considered distinctive of English females, end quote. This obscene display was, according to the author, only for prostitutes and adulteresses. We feel it a duty, they continued, to warn every parent against exposing his daughter to so fatal a contagion. Similar concerns were voiced in North America when the waltz became popular here a few years later. A writer for the Southern Literary Messenger was particularly scandalized in 1835, asking, quote, Can our beloved wives and daughters beloved because still uncontaminated by foreign corruptions, can they suffer themselves to be continually whirled about in all the giddy, exciting mazes of the licentious waltz, like so many French or Italian opera girls, without impairing or losing all self-respect, end quote. It's no wonder that the Pope himself banned the controversial dance in the early 1800s, or that a renowned French theologian cautioned in 1826 that the waltz was, quote, a violent poison which carries instantaneous death to the souls of those who join it, and renders them deserving of hell's flames, end quote. It wasn't just the waltz, of course. Any lively dance that might bring together young couples of the opposite sex was considered dangerous, immoral, and worthy of prohibition. In Quebec, the subject of dance and music has been controversial since the very beginning, with church leaders of the 1680s threatening excommunication for anyone who might attend or, God forbid, host any gathering where people might drink, sing, and dance. But music and dancing are an important part of a community's cultural fabric, and despite the church's efforts, people continued to gather. So, by 1843, as North American writers warned naive parents about the dangers of the waltz, the church gave in and allowed the public to assemble, sometimes even in parish halls, provided they followed certain rules. First, any lively dancing was strictly prohibited, along with any songs, gestures, and games considered to be contrary to modesty. Parents were required to transport their children, especially their daughters, to and from any community gathering. Drinking was strictly prohibited, except at family meals which could accompany these gatherings. 
Finally, it goes without saying that these events could not occur during times of religious significance, and a curfew was enforced. But how do you convince a community, especially the young people in that community, that the waltz, the dance craze that has taken the world by storm, is dangerous? How do you teach children the importance of temperance, of listening to one's parents, being cautious of strangers, and honoring the rules of the community? How do you get a room full of revelers caught up in the moment to slow down, disengage, and avoid violating those rules? Quite often, you would do so with a story like this one. Part 1. The Devil at the Dance It was the evening of Mardi Gras, the final night of Carnival, of ten days of feasting and festivity. The winter wind was blowing hard, covering the quiet village in a blanket of swirling snow. Any traveler unlucky enough to be out in that cold and that time of night would need only to lean into the whistling wind and listen for the sound of a violin. The high notes would lead them down an empty road to a home filled with light, laughter, and music, where the people of the village came together for one last celebration. The stroke of midnight would mark the arrival of Ash Wednesday and the beginning of Lent, a 40-day period of abstinence, solemn contemplation, and sacrifice. But until then, the night belonged to the dancers, the musicians, and the fiery strokes of the fiddle. If the evening belonged to the dancers, the dance belonged to Rose. Strikingly beautiful, the daughter of the host was like a singular snowflake caught in the tempest outside. She danced and leapt, dipped and twirled tirelessly through the room, riding the rhythm of the music, and accepting any offer from any man daring enough to attempt to match her exuberance. Her fiancé certainly couldn't, sitting morose and forgotten in the corner, expecting the world to notice his misery and beg for forgiveness. An hour before midnight, there was a knock on the door. The host called out a welcome, the door swung open, and a cold dagger of air blasted across the room. A stranger appeared on the threshold, a black form framed in a flurry of snow. The master of the house greeted him warmly, and the stranger explained with a pleasant smile that he was a traveler who had lost his way in the storm. He hoped to lean on their hospitality for a while, warm himself by the fire, and perhaps have a dance or two before continuing on his way. The magnanimous host welcomed him in, took his coat and hat, and placed them near the fire. Oddly, the stranger politely declined the offers to take his gloves and stable his horse, insisting that he wouldn't stay long enough to warrant the trouble. He took a few drinks, strode across the floor to the edge of the whirling dancers, tapped his black boots to the beat of the music, and joined in. You've never seen a person move with such ease and such grace. He had a charm that was irresistible to all the young women who met his gaze. They felt themselves come alive in his arms. Possessed by the spirit of the dance, they were almost floating. The stranger made his way across the floor, flirting, conversing, and dancing, until he found his way to Rose. The fire had found its fuel. Together, they ignited in a blaze of color and movement, 
The fiddler was going hard now, bending and twisting, pushing the tempo faster and faster, and the crowd cheered him on. All the commotion had woken Rose's little brother, who, until now, had been sleeping soundly in the loft upstairs. Knowing it would be almost impossible for the child to go back to sleep amidst all the excitement, his grandmother sat him on her knee, and they both watched the dancers reeling below through the balustrade. The wide-eyed boy leaned forward and smiled, mesmerized by the spectacle. But he cried out and cowered in his grandmother's chest whenever the stranger drew near. Knowing better than to ignore the instincts of an innocent, the grandmother crossed herself and tried to get Rose's attention as the clock on the hearth struck the final quarter hour. Now earlier I had said that everyone from the village was at the party, but that wasn't quite true. The curé, the village priest, was understandably not one for drinking or dancing. He had fallen asleep in his study, his head on an open Bible. But the holy book did nothing to protect him from the nightmare in his mind. In his dream, he saw a colossal black serpent stretched out on the midnight snow. The naked, half-eaten body of a young woman was clutched between its claws, her head already devoured. The priest tried to turn away, but an invisible force kept him paralyzed. The creature gnawed at the woman's neck, then stopped and looked up. Their eyes met. The preacher jolted awake and sent the Bible tumbling to the floor. It took him a moment to realize where he was. He blinked at the shelves in his study, illuminated by a dying candle's light, then grabbed the Bible from the floor, gathered his coat and stole, and ran out the door. Back at the party, a circle had formed around Rose and the dignified stranger, formed by the merrymakers who, try as they might, couldn't keep up. The clock struck midnight. It was now Ash Wednesday. The crowd applauded and dispersed, and Rose began to slow, but the stranger held firm, one hand on her hip, the other on her chin as he gazed into her eyes. Just a few minutes more, he said. We should finish the dance. Rose nodded. The fiddler, driven by some strange power, played on as Rose twirled and twisted, almost floating through the air. Suddenly, the stranger pulled her close and whispered that they should never be apart. She felt a sudden, sharp pain in the palm of her hand and went limp. The stranger turned her around and lifted the hair from her neck, revealing a silver cross necklace around her elegant throat. This will show that you are mine, he said, producing a beautiful pearl necklace from his pocket. Letting it dangle from his fingers, he began to remove the girl's simple chain. Just then, the door burst open and the village priest appeared in the doorway. Raising his Bible, he strode toward the stranger and his hapless prey. The stranger's eyes glowed red as he backed away slowly, snarling at the holy man, Rose still in his grasp. Some in the crowd were alarmed and confused. Others ran out the door. Those with the strongest faith fell to their knees and prayed, for they knew that the devil was in their midst. The priest slowly pulled the stole from his neck and, uttering a prayer, cast it onto Rose's shoulder. 
There was a monstrous sound as the earth shook. A vortex of fire rose up from the floor, bringing with it a light so bright that those who were left were forced to look away. Within moments, the flames vanished, the quaking stopped, and the priest looked back to find Rose lying on her side, shaking beneath his stool. Five savage marks, red as flame, stretched from her shoulder to the small of her back. The floor below her was a circle of scorched black, stretching from the preacher's feet through the wall now blasted open to an arc of burnt grass just beyond, bordered by three feet of half-melted snow. Thanks to a holy vision and the brave actions of the local priest, the devil had been beaten that night, driven away empty-handed. No one knows what happened to Rose. Some say she lived on, happy, healthy, and a little wiser. Others say she entered a convent, fearing that the devil would come back for her, and died a few years later. Still others claim that she aged 50 years that night, and lost her youth along with her mind. We do know that she never married her fiancé, and that, no matter how hard her family tried, the damaged wall of their home could never be repaired. Every new stone erected in its place would simply tumble over or crumble to dust. For a while, they would stack their firewood on one side and place a dresser on the other, set with three prayer candles they kept constantly lit. After a few years, they moved away, though no one can say where. One thing is for certain, however. No one danced in that home ever again. Part 2. The Devil in the Details Traditionally, there are two kinds of narratives in French-Canadian storytelling. First, there are the contes populaires, or folktales. This is the world of fables and fairy tales, ancient stories found throughout the world that are told and accepted as little more than entertaining fiction. Then, there are legends. These are told as true stories, as if the events really occurred, and tend to be a little darker, a little more thrilling. They're full of buried treasures, flying canoes, and dangerous encounters with werewolves, ghosts, and the devil. They're not necessarily original, you'll still find similar tales elsewhere, but they're shared with passion and conviction and often include people's names and details of geographical locations that bind them to a specific region, adding to their believability. This localization helps the story, and the storyteller, better reflect the customs, beliefs, and traditions of their community, and sell the tale as truth. This story of The Devil at the Dance was traditionally told as a true legend, and that makes sense. Stories like these are much more powerful and convincing that way. If you want to keep your child away from the river at night, you might tell them of the monster who lives there. If you want to teach them the value of listening to their parents and following the rules, you might tell them this story instead. That explains why so many versions that have been collected by folklorists over the years are set in a specific time or place. Many villages would have had their own story, set in either their community or sometimes the next town over, where the people were a little more sinful. The Devil's Dance Partner doesn't always have a name, but when she does, it varies. Most famously, she is known as Rose La Tulipe, 
but also as Alice Prevost, Flora, Corinne, and Blanche, just to name a few. Folklorist Edith Falk noted that one storyteller even claimed to have known the heroine. She was identified as Miss Bolduc of St. Isidore, Quebec, a small parish municipality south of Montreal. The legend seems to have been most popular along the lower St. Lawrence River, in Quebec and Ontario, and it has over 500 variations. But it wasn't born there, nor is it exclusive to French Canada. In fact, the tradition dates back to at least the 14th century, with similar legends found elsewhere in Canada, as well as the United States, Mexico, France, Holland, Norway, Poland, and Germany. The exhilarating notion that the devil could walk among us, combined with a strong moral lesson and warning about inappropriate, sexually charged dance, has given the story a particularly long life, especially in the southern United States. Though the mid-19th century saw the devil dancing the waltz at community parties in Europe and New France, he apparently found his way to modern dance floors as well, where he developed a taste for the polka, the tango, and, of course, the Lombada. According to urban legends, he has appeared as a dashing cowboy in a Texas roadhouse, a handsome stranger in a San Antonio nightclub, and a fiery dancer in a Tijuana disco. But while the dance style and location has changed over the years, the lesson remains the same. Be on your best behavior. You never know when the devil might drop by. But David, I hear you ask, how can I tell if my dance partner is really the devil? Well, here's a handy list of red flags pulled from a number of those stories. It's a party. Everyone is having fun, singing, drinking, and dancing. But what's this? A handsome stranger has asked you to dance. This is certainly exciting, but be careful. That stranger might just be Satan himself. To be certain, stop, look, and listen, and check for these warning signs. First, look. Examine your dance partner closely. What is he wearing? Is he clad from head to toe in silk, lace, or velvet? Is his outfit just one color, perhaps a Stygian black or hellfire red? Look at that coat. Is it luxurious and in the latest fashion? Maybe Louis Vuitton, Canada Goose, or tailor-made from raccoon or wildcat pelts? An easy determination might be made by simply looking at his shoes. Very often, the devil is unable to cover up his cloven hooves or chicken feet, an easy giveaway. Finally, is he shy about removing his hat or gloves? This could be his way of hiding his horns and claws, the telltale signs of a demon. Second, watch how he moves and interacts with others. Does he carry himself with a lordly dignity and grace? Does he flatter and delight with eloquent praise and erudite conversation? Does he seem really into you and yet way out of your league? Are his actions and demeanor characteristic of a much higher class, perhaps that of the heir of a corporate empire or the Prince of Darkness? Next, investigate his transportation. Are there people outside braving a cold winter storm just to admire his horse? 
Is it impeccably clean, especially fast, and as black as the depths of Hades? Does it run hellishly hot? If it melts the snow and generates a significant amount of infernal flame, it may soon be parked in perdition. Still not sure? Get your family involved. Ask Dad to spike his drink with holy water, or your grandmother to pray quietly in the corner. If your dance partner winces when they drink, or when Grandma says the name of Jesus or Mary, you might be dancing with the devil. Children can be especially effective. Is there a toddler nearby? If so, wake Junior and ask for his opinion of your new friend. If the innocent child cries or relays through sleepy yawns, visions, and sensations of burning flames, you might want to take a break and grab a snack. If you're lucky, your partner will lose interest and move on to Charlotte or Emma. You never liked them anyway. Finally, listen. Toward the end of the evening, pause a moment and ask yourself, has my dance partner muttered anything about strange, mysterious pacts or covenants? Has he asked me in a foreboding tone to stay with him forever? Has he insisted that I dance past midnight when everyone else has stopped? If the answer to any of these questions is yes, your bow might just be Beelzebub. With these simple tips, you're now ready to be the belle of the ball and not the bride of Satan. But don't be complacent, always be on your guard. If you feel your soul is in danger, consult your nearest priest and heed these last words of advice. When in doubt, sit it out. All joking aside, it's details like these that give us fascinating insight into the history and the changing values and beliefs of these communities. If you're at all familiar with the French-Canadian legend of the Devil at the Dance, it's likely steeped in Catholic anxieties and ideals. In the most well-known versions of the story, the young woman is especially immoral. She's vain, she's promiscuous, she's disloyal, dancing and flirting with everyone but her fiancé. She's greedy, willing to abandon her future husband for the fabulous wealth that the stranger can provide. And she's disrespectful, refusing to heed the words of her parents, her elders, and of God, often being tempted, but sometimes making the conscious choice to dance across the threshold of a religious holiday. The devil, in turn, is attracted to her corruption and comes to the party with the intent to steal her soul. It is only by the heroic interference of the brave and righteous priest, the shepherd of his flock, that the girl is saved and the devil defeated. The moral of the story is clear. Only devout faith and the holy power of the church can save you from yourself, from the devil, and from eternal damnation. But it wasn't always that way. I mentioned earlier that there are a lot of different versions of this story, and at first glance, you might get the sense that the differences are small, owing mostly to the creative license of the various storytellers and the different settings. But as you look a little closer and start to learn about the history and cultural significance of the legend, you begin to see something more, or less in this case. See, there are two distinct ways that this story has been told, 
as an oral tradition and as a written legend. And folklorists seem to generally agree that the oral stories are much older, owing partly to the fact that they are far simpler and often less dripping with Catholic undertones. In the written legends, there's always an element of sin that attracts the devil, usually lust, gluttony, and pride on the part of the young woman who flirts and dances her way into the devil's arms. Now that's true in some of the oral stories as well, but her behavior and her punishment tends to be less severe. Most often, her biggest misstep is that she chooses to dance with a handsome interloper than with her own fiancé. And that's an act that would have been just as unacceptable for the community as it would be for the church. But in the simplest stories, she is more a victim of circumstance than sin. She's not singled out for being particularly promiscuous or willfully immoral. She just happens to be there, often as the daughter of the host, and often as just one of many young women who make the devil's acquaintance. The only difference between her and them is that she has the misfortune to be within the devil's reach when the clock strikes midnight. Of course, there's also the sin of dancing and celebrating on Ash Wednesday, the first day of Lent, a holy day that serves as a solemn reminder of our own mortality and the need to reconcile with God. A perfect time for such a story. In some of the tales, when the woman isn't particularly sinful, this fact is used to implicate the entire community. All of them are guilty of sin, but our heroine is the only one who pays the price. But even that isn't consistent. Some tales take place on a completely normal day with no religious significance. And while some of the parties could be framed as mere excuses to engage in forbidden drink, dance, and debauchery, other parties seem perfectly justified. One takes place after a wedding, another to welcome back a beloved family member after an extended time away. In these stories, the lesson seems to be not that the devil will punish you for your sins, but that the devil could be lurking anywhere, could arrive when you least expect him, and appear in the form of a handsome outsider. A stranger, intent on tearing at the fabric of your community. The endings are different as well. It's not always a priest who comes to the rescue. In the simpler, likely older tales, the role of the ally is often played by a family member instead. In many of the oral traditions, it's the matriarch of the family, the traditional leader of the household, a wise older woman, usually an aunt, mother, or grandmother, who steps in and drives the devil away. An innocent child will often reveal the true nature of the handsome stranger, and a cross or vial of holy water will provide the right motivation to get the devil moving. But it is she who finally reveals the devil's ruse and casts him out. No priest required, thank you very much. Frequently in these stories, the young woman survives her encounter. Nothing more is said, and we can assume she lives on happily and wiser ever after thanks to the quick thinking of those around her. It's more common in later, written versions of the story for the young woman to be thoroughly punished for her transgressions by going insane, being burned alive, wasting away in a convent, or being dragged to hell. The lack of punishment and church intervention suggests that these simpler tales come from a time before the Catholic Church held much sway in the region. It's still religious, of course, the devil is still the antagonist, but he seems to be more of a danger to society rather than to any one person's soul, 
And it is the bonds of family and community, rather than the power of the church, that ultimately keeps the young people safe from evil and corruption. If our heroine chooses to ignore her sad sack of a fiancé and dance with the devil instead, it could be seen in these stories as more of a violation of community rather than church law. The moral here is much more simple. Listen to your parents, follow the rules of the community, pay attention to your surroundings, keep your wits about you, and be wary of strangers. It's a lesson that can be found in many other tales of people encountering the devil in both French and English, in Canada and throughout the world. There are so many great stories about the devil being overpowered, outsmarted, and outcasted by savvy villagers that they really deserve an episode of their own. So, suffice to say, they often end in the same way, with a rather astute and observant person, often a woman, who discovers the devil's trickery. Cleverly spotting his hooves under the table or on the dance floor, or wondering if a set of horns might be hidden under his hat, she unmasks the adversary and sends him on his way, usually in a Looney Tune-style escape that sees him crash through the stone wall and disappear, leaving a devil-sized hole behind him. In a way, the devil in these stories is more like Little Red Riding Hood's Big Bad Wolf than the ruler of hell. He walks disguised among the people and preys on the young and innocent. He is dangerous, certainly, but he is easily outsmarted and avoided by those who keep their wits about them and look for clues. While Red observed, What big ears you have, Rose La Tulipe or any of the other unfortunate dancers might have said something like, What strange feet or What odd gloves you have. Even if the worst should happen, if the wolf consumes Red or the devil tries to kidnap his dance partner, an authority figure within the community is there to help them out. In Little Red Riding Hood, it's a woodsman, an authority of the wilderness through which Red traverses. In the older legends of the devil at the dance, it's sometimes a father, but more often a mother or grandmother, an authority of the home and of the family. If all of this is true, if the older stories were more about community, vigilance, and independence, rather than the mortal dangers of the waltz or dancing during Lent, how did the legend of the Devil at the Dance become such an iconic story about sin, punishment, and salvation? Well, as is often the case, it's all about who's telling the story. Part 3. Giving the Devil His Due Imagine you're a French settler in the early days of colonization. You barely managed to struggle your way through a particularly disastrous winter that saw a good portion of your community wither and die from the ravages of vicious cold, clawing hunger, and devastating land sickness, better known today as scurvy. You and your fellow survivors worked especially hard these past months to pull what you could from the land, and now it's mid-November. The frigid days are getting shorter, and you're preparing to settle in for another long, dark winter. You have enough. Enough food, enough supplies, you hope. Really, there's only one thing your fledgling colony is not short on. Time. That's the only thing you can't give away. Soon, the seconds will fall like the coming snow, aimlessly drifting, slowly piling against your cottage door, climbing the walls, choking the light from the sky. A silent suffocation. 
What do you do to pass the time until the sun can shine again? Simple. You feast. You eat, drink, and tell stories, one of your only possessions you could bring with you on the voyage. And that's exactly what the people of Port Royal, Nova Scotia did in 1606, when, at the suggestion of Samuel de Champlain, they created the Ordre de Bon Temps, or the Order of Good Cheer, a social group that relied on feasting, merrymaking, theater, and ceremony to keep spirits high and help pass the time. A similar, though less official, attitude could be found throughout much of early French Canada, with many communities regularly coming together during the winter months. And it was at these gatherings where stories would be shared about kings and queens, magic, monsters, and perhaps footloose devils who liked to crash parties. These events would continue well into the 19th century, growing in importance and excess along with the population. In an essay on 19th century Quebec, Professor Pierre Rejot explains how a lonely landscape, harsh winter climate, profound sense of isolation, and widespread illiteracy eventually led to what he describes as a carnivalesque spirit, characterized by the transgression of prohibitions in the Dionysian excess of drinking, eating, and sexuality. The church didn't approve, of course, and as the years went by and their power grew, they did what they could to influence the culture. One of the best ways to influence a culture is to guide the way people gather and the way they tell stories. So they began pushing for a larger temperance movement and replacing the wild and popular community parties with officially sanctioned holidays, feasts, and processions. Next, the parish priests began appropriating popular legends, using them to add drama to their fiery sermons at the pulpit and to close church-approved gatherings. Oral traditions like the Devil at the Dance were especially effective at capturing the attention of young partygoers, helping them wind down for the evening while conveying the dangers of losing oneself in revelry and disobeying God's law. It was also a convenient way to paint themselves as heroes, holy saviors and champions of God who replaced family members as the all-important ally. It's likely that this was the time when the story's setting shifted from any random night to the eve of Mardi Gras, one of the biggest parties of the year, and when certain styles of dancing, notably the waltz and the polka, joined the list of sins in the story. One can imagine a local priest calling out to Mardi Gras dancers at 11 p.m. and urging them all to come and listen to his story about a girl who didn't heed her cure's warning, who didn't respect the holy significance of Ash Wednesday, and paid dearly for her transgression. Rajot believes these stories were cathartic for their listeners, a safe way to live beyond their limits explore their desires for a world without prohibition, and commit an act of imaginary transgression. They purge their desires, listen as a fictional stand-in is punished for their actions, and then return home, safe and satisfied. In my opinion, this transitional phase, when the folktale transformed into a tool of the church, might be best exemplified in one small detail from at least one story that was discovered by literature professor and ethnologist Jean de Berger and mentioned by author Aurélien Boivin. In this particular tale, when the priest rushes in to face the devil and save the young woman, he wields a surprising weapon. 
It's not the usual vial of holy water, priestly stole, holy bible, or breviary that sends the devil running, but a book known as Le Petit Albert, an 18th century grimoire of natural and cabalistic magic. Despite being labeled as a form of black magic by the Catholic Church, Le Petit Albert was enormously popular in France in the 18th and 19th centuries, and went on to influence communities in New Orleans, the French West Indies, and French Canada. To me, the image of a Catholic priest clutching a book of black magic marks an interesting crossover between folk belief and religious doctrine. In the 1830s, driven to secure a culture that was continually threatened by English dominance, a national effort began to collect and preserve the, quote, stories of the people, end quote, the folk tales and legends that had been shared in the colony for a century or more. But many of the people from whom these stories came were illiterate, and thus the task of recording and sharing them in literary form fell to the educated elite. Now that fact brings up some important questions, and I think Professor Rajot phrased them best. Were the recovery and preservation efforts true to the people, history, and heritage? And did the literature truly reflect the people and their own image? Many scholars seem doubtful, noting that many stories included heavy-handed religious symbolism and morality. They suggest that, while their intentions may have been good, these educated authors of the upper class undoubtedly modified the folklore to better reflect their own class's ideology. Such is the danger for any author, or indeed any podcaster, who chooses to explore the fascinating but complicated subject of folklore. Many legends of French Canada were recorded, published, and popularized during this period, including such classics as La Chasse-Galerie, Le Loup-Garou, and The Devil at the Dance. Without a doubt, the most popular version of that story was written by the French-Canadian author Philippe-Ignace-Francois Aubert de Gaspé, and was included in his work L'Influence de Livre, or The Influence of a Book, famous today for being the first French-Canadian novel. The story takes up an entire chapter as a sort of interlude, where one character tells the legend to another. It's titled simply L'Etranger, or The Stranger, but is perhaps more often referenced as The Legend of Rose la Tulipe, the name of the young woman in the story. Gaspé's retelling hits all the notes we've come to expect. It takes place at a party on the evening of Mardi Gras at some time in the distant past. The host's daughter, a beautiful young woman named Rose, is dancing the night away when a dark and handsome stranger appears. He refuses to remove his gloves and hat, grimaces when he drinks a shot from a glass that once held holy water, and flashes dirty looks at an old, devout woman who sits praying in the corner. Now, these signs are pretty obvious, but Rose is so caught up in the fun, she ignores them all, including a verbal warning from the old woman, and agrees to dance with the stranger, much to the chagrin of her jilted fiancé. The clock strikes midnight, it is now Ash Wednesday. The stranger convinces Rose to urge her father to allow one more dance, and he agrees. Then, the stranger convinces the poor young woman to forget all about her fiancé and promise herself to him. She gives him her hand, he marks it, and then he tries to replace her cross necklace with one of his own. Just then, the local priest arrives. 
he had received a vision from God, telling him that a member of his flock was in danger. He dashes toward the couple, throws his stole around Rose's shoulders, and reveals that the stranger was really the devil in disguise. A surprise to everyone but the reader. After lecturing the crowd about how true Christians would not dance, drink, and divert themselves on such a holy day, the devil vanishes in a cloud of brimstone. But the damage is already done. Rose had given herself to the devil, and she worries that he will return to claim his prize. So she leaves with the priest, enters a convent, and dies as a nun just five years later. Gaspé's book was published in 1837. The following year, in 1838, the Patriots were defeated in the Lower Canada Rebellion. Political disillusionment swept the region, and, according to Professor Rajot, the clergy made a concerted effort to fill the void. It's likely that these two cultural movements, the drive to preserve a people's stories and to spur a religious revival, both led to Gaspé's story becoming the dominant legend. It became so popular, in fact, that the story of Rose La Tulipe found its way into English collections of Canadian legends, one of the few French stories to make the leap. Of course, by then, through time and translation, it had lost its status as a true story, becoming more of a quaint tale, an example of what people used to believe. Today, the story of The Devil at the Dance is generally told as a tale to excite children, if it's told at all. What were once its most popular lessons on the dangers of drinking, dancing, and having fun on religious holidays no longer seem relevant in the modern era, and it's far too easy to hear the tale and think how cute, how charming, how old-fashioned. But as we've seen, it's not just about the dangers of fun and forbidden dance. Its story and morals go much deeper, and it has found a way to resonate with people for hundreds of years. Professor and author Jean de Bourget has literally written the book on this subject, titled appropriately Le Diable à la Danse. Inside, de Bourget tells us that, at its most basic, the story is about finding peace, order, and belonging within your community, what he calls the world order. In the story of The Devil at the Dance, the devil is a stranger, an outsider, who comes to the community through the wilderness and represents the degradation and destruction of society. The girl, young and free-spirited, is the next generation whom we must protect to ensure our culture endures. She transgresses a prohibition of some kind, as simple as dancing or not paying attention to the world around her or not listening to her parents, as complex as dishonoring her partner and pursuing men for money. She yields to an unknown seduction, destabilizing society and threatening the very existence of the group. The degradation persists and the danger rises until it reaches a point of crisis where not just one person, but the entire group is in peril. Then comes an awareness, where others in the group recognize the danger and instability, and action must be taken. Either the transgressor is punished and removed from the community, or a leader from within steps up and saves the day. Ultimately, the story of the devil at the dance is an instrument of social education. 
a warning of how one individual's transgressions can endanger not just themselves, but the entire world around them. Perhaps in the end, the story is not about the sanctity of religious holidays, the dangers of sin, the threats posed by outsiders, or even the sexual deviance encouraged by the lascivious waltz or polka. Perhaps, in the end, it's about the importance of our culture and community, and our place within it. That's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening, and for joining me in becoming part of a Canadian folk tradition. Now that you know the story, share it. And remember, next time you're at a party, keep an eye out for any mysterious strangers. And keep an ear out for the sound of devilish hooves on the dance floor. Before I go, I'd like to give a quick shout-out to another Canadian podcast, Historia Canadiana, which focuses on Canadian culture, literature, and history. If you want to learn more about the history of tonight's topic, I recommend listening to episode 18. It provides a more in-depth look at the history that surrounds the Lower Canada Rebellion and the publication of the first French-Canadian novel. Fireside Canada is written and recorded by me, David Williams. Sound design and mixing is by Braden Alexander. A special thanks to my friend Mike Rink for lending his voice to this episode. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider giving this podcast a positive review. If you want to help even further, you can provide story ideas and more through my website. Every little bit helps to keep the fire burning and the library of legends growing. Learn more at firesidecanada.ca. <laughs>